0: Hi listeners, Lauren Korn here, host of The Right Question. Do take note and take care. There are multiple references to sexual violence in the following episode.
1: This guy was clearly a charlatan. And his core was just a completely rotten human being. That's one of the themes and questions that drove me to finish this story. Is it in our character as Americans or is it just in our character as human beings to fall for con men.
0: Hello and welcome to The Right Question, a radio program and podcast featuring authors from the American West and beyond. Our funding comes from Humanities Montana and members of Montana Public Radio, and from the Greater Montana Foundation, encouraging communication on issues, trends, and values of importance to Montanans. I'm Lauren Korn, speaking with writer Timothy Egan, author of A Fever in the Heartland, the Ku Klux Klan's plot to take over America, and the woman who stopped them. This is the riveting story of the Klan's rise to power in the 1920s, D.C. Stevenson, the cunning conman and the architect of the strategy that brought the group out of the shadows, and the woman, Madge Oberholzer, who stopped them. Timothy Egan is a Pulitzer Prize winning reporter and the author of 10 books, including The Just Released, A Fever in the Heartland. His book on the Dust Bowl, The Worst Hard Time, won a National Book Award for nonfiction. His book on photographer Edward Curtis, Short Nights of the Shadow Catcher, was awarded the Carnegie Medal for nonfiction. He's also written several New York Times bestsellers, including The Immortal Irishman and The Big Burn. He's a third generation Westerner. Tim, thanks so much for joining me today. Welcome to The Right Question.
1: Great to be with you.
0: I'm just going to dive right in. Who is D.C. Stevenson?
1: Yeah, so this is one of those stories that largely got lost from history. And Harry Truman famously said, the only new thing in the world is the history we do not know. And this is history we do not know. I didn't know it. I mean, I I consider myself fairly literate in American history. D.C. Stevenson, was the most powerful member of the nation's oldest domestic terror group, that being the Ku Klux Klan, the world had ever seen. A classic American archetype, a con man, a grifter, uh, a man who professed that no one should drink during the era of prohibition, but was himself a raging alcoholic, a man who professed to be on the side of the purity of women, but was a rapist, a man who said was was blessed from the pulpit of evangelical churches as a man of virtue, but he lied 20 ways from Sunday. Um, my story is about the Klan in the 1920s at the epicenter of the United States when six million Americans swore out an oath to the Ku Klux Klan. And nowhere was it more powerful in Indiana. So Stevenson takes over in Indiana. And in four short years, he goes from a drifter to a guy who could who could boast that I am the law. And he was the law.
0: As you just said, A Fever in the Heartland is really the story of this second resurgence of the Ku Klux Klan um, that reached its peak in in the 1920s. In the book you write, Evansville, Indiana, was ripe for the Klan, the perfect place to plant the flag in the North for the second coming of the Invisible Empire. So my question to you, Tim, is why was America ripe for the Klan? What did the country look like at this point in history? And, and yeah, what made it possible for the Klan to gain control in the way that it was able to?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. There, there are all kinds of changes going on. We just come out of a pandemic. Uh, we just come out of a world war, we just given women the vote, and we just out outlawed alcohol in every square foot. Of, Forget about a Negroni. I mean, you couldn't get anything to drink anywhere. Someone famously said, at a time when America most needed to drink, you couldn't get one. Um, so all these changes are going on. But here's the important bigger stuff. Immigrants are pouring into the country, but they don't look like the earlier immigrants. they are Jews from Eastern Europe. they are Italians and Catholics from Southern Europe, Sicilians, Sicily had a horrible earthquake and 800,000 people left Sicily in 20 years to come to the United States um blacks are moving north the great migration they're fleeing the jim crow of the south where they they don't have any citizenship rights and they're moving to the north and one more thing women are socially liberated they're going into speakeasies and they're dancing and they're laughing and they're having fun they're dancing to jazz this african-american uniquely american music the Klan is a reaction to all those changes changing demographic face of america new immigrants so they hate Catholics, and they hate immigrants, and they hate Jews. Blacks moving north, so they're trying to plant Jim Crow in the north to keep blacks from having, moving into certain neighbors or going to certain schools. And finally, they go out under this monster of a man, and they break up speakeasies. They, they, they go into parked cars with their flashlights and guns if they see two teenagers kissing in the car. Because it's a violation of clan virtue, they're sort of like the Taliban. You know, they shut down Jewish retailers who have their stores open on Sunday. So it's a, it's it's the a reaction of a certain part of America to change, and in, or, in order to fight change, they go to the darker parts of our you know the, our worst angels, I guess.
0: My follow up to that answer and and my question then is. Why has this particular history faded from our country's cultural memory? Why is it, why is it something that we don't actually think about or hear about all that often anymore?
1: You know, we're having a raging debate about that very question right now. Uh in Florida, they're banning certain books and uh, in Texas that teach history. Now, look, I want to stress that I'm I'm a proud American, I'm a proud Irish American, I'm a proud Montana family on one side American. Um I'm not one of these people that, you know, routinely denigrates our country, but I'm not afraid of the darker parts of our past. And I don't think anybody should be because we study history. You don't want a smiley button version of history. We study history because it gives us a blueprint for how to get out of these awful eras. It gives us a blueprint for how people against really huge odds were able to beat the bad persons in our history. So, yeah, we practice to your question specifically We practice a lot of historical amnesia in this country. We always have. Uh, It's human nature to try to forget the bad parts. I mean, there was a Ku Klux Klan that lynched people. The last lynching in the North was in Indiana. And these thousands of people took the equivalent of selfies of themselves uh, next to these two dangling corpses of two men, innocent men who had been killed by a mob. And no one was ever brought to justice. So, I mean, do we like hearing this? Um, I don't know. I mean, I tell the story of good and bad. I tell the story of these forces that we've forgotten about. And I also tell the story of the forces that went against them.
0: If we are recognizing in the present a lot of what has already been happening or has happened in America's history... If we're seeing a lot of that happening now, what is it that we can learn from this history, this this resurgence of the KKK in the twenties, that that we might be able to apply to our present?
1: It's a great question because um, the Anti-Defamation League just came out with a report. Uh, this is probably a week ago, and they said that. The rise in anti-Jewish, anti-Semitic hate crimes has never been higher since they started keeping track, they didn't start keeping track until the 1970s. So we see this kind of poison that comes and goes in our society and, you know, anti-Semitic behavior. When these people marched in Charleston, I think it was a couple of years ago with their tiki torches, their chant was Jews will not replace us. You know, that's what the Klan said in the 1920s, that we won't let these immigrants replace us. So yeah, what we can learn is that this stuff courses through our society, like finding a, a vein of copper underneath Montana. It's like these veins are there, um, and sometimes we think these veins have been exhausted, but they come and go. It's important to see them for what they are. Now, I will stay in your state, in Montana. The Klan tried to get a foothold in places like Butte, where where part of my family's from. Um, my, my grandfather grew up there and many of our relatives, we were, we were pretty thick in Butte. Uh, in fact, my namesake, Timothy Patrick got killed by a streetcar in Butte because there were a lot of Irish Catholics in Butte. You know, at one point there were more, there's more Gaelic spoken in Butte than anywhere. they said outside of Dublin, they rose up against the clan. That was just one of the places where the clan wasn't very successful. They tried to plant The Klan Grand Dragon, went to Montana and had several meetings. They wanted to plant some clan dens in Montana. And it was these Catholics, primarily Irish Catholics, who ran them out of town. Um, So in studying this history, you can find people that did the right thing, the resistors who stood up to them. And those are, you know, those are worthwhile American role models. So let's not be afraid to study this history.
0: I was surprised to learn from your book, that the Klan had such a stronghold in the Northwest, um, a place that we now consider a very progressive or liberal, but the, the Klan was, was very active.
1: So I'm a native Northwestern, despite my Montana roots. My family moved here and I, I was born and raised in the Pacific Northwest. You're not the only one who was surprised. I was really surprised because we think of the Northwest as having a history of uh, Different kinds of politics, uh, antithetical to the Klan, and it does. But there are times where, you know, this this was not true. Oregon, Oregon had the first Klan-sponsored governor in 1921, and there were these big rallies in Portland where the chief of police and the mayor would pose next to these guys with their hoods and their robes on. Astoria, at the mouth of the Columbia River, the first American town west of the Rocky Mountains had a Klan convention that attracted 10,000 people. The town only has 9,000. And they elected a Klan mayor in the 1920s. Um, they passed a law in Oregon. The people did. The only place in the United States this ever happened to outlaw Catholic schools. And that was a simply a goal of the Klan to go after immigrants. They didn't give a crap about... What this said about christianity one way or the other what they wanted to do was to shut down the power base of immigrants irish and italians primarily for the same reason they were big on prohibition why was the Klan so interested in outlawing alcohol because they thought if they got rid of the pubs and the saloons that were the social meeting the glue that held them together a lot of new immigrants learned how to become americans in the bars in the saloons You know, they met people who helped them become a citizen or turn out a vote. The Klan's idea was if we can shut down the saloons and the bars, uh, we could shut down their power. So, yeah, I was equally surprised. And in Washington State, where I live, they held a Klan rally in the city of Issaquah, which is just outside Seattle. It's now the home base for Costco. And 13,000 people turned out on a July night to burn flaming crosses and don white robes, uh, just outside of Seattle. So, I mean, let's not excuse ourselves in the North of thinking this is a bunch of Southern hicks.
0: You mentioned the mayor being elected and a Klan affiliated in Oregon. Um, Klan members in the 20s dominated politics, politically and culturally, the Klan really rose up. Um, The KKK was no longer operating under the cover of darkness as it had previously, what was the extent of their power politically? Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Sure. So they were known, they called themselves the Invisible Empire, the Knights of the Ku Klux Klan. And they said the reason they wear these masks is because they, they thought they were more powerful by being anonymous. You know, And it turned out there were several groups that tried to unmask them. You know, They printed the membership lists. And beneath that robe was the guy who might be your banker. Uh, Beneath that robe was a minister of your Protestant church. Beneath that robe, God forbid, was a teacher. Um, So there were a lot of so-called average people who joined the invisible empire. Now, in the 1920s, they were so powerful that they stopped being invisible. When they marched down Washington, D.C., 50,000 strong, they had their masks off. They had their robes on, but their masks off, proclaiming their power. They had... Uh, an office six blocks from the White House, staffed by a staff by 60 Klansmen. So they were a huge influence group. And the subtitle of my book is The Ku Klux Klan's Plot to Take Over America. That's not an exaggeration. The 1924 political conventions, Time magazine put the leader of the Klan on its cover because they were the most powerful influence group at both the Democrats and the Republican National conventional, national conventions. They had four United States senators, they had four governors, and they had probably 75 members of Congress who followed them. The next step was the White
0: House. You're listening to A Conversation with Timothy Egan. I'm Lauren Korn. This is The Right Question. If you'd like to listen to this conversation again or share it with friends, it can be found online at mtpr.org, where you can also subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. One of the tenets of the KKK at this time was the protection of women, their purity. And yet it was D.C. Stevenson, who you talked about at the at the top of our conversation, his hypocrisy, his failure to follow or to live up to this tenant. And that's I'm talking about his attack on, on Madge Oberholzer, that ultimately brought him and the KKK down. Um, I don't know how much you want to give away to our listeners, but will you talk a little bit about who Madge Oberholzer was?
1: Right. I'll try not to give away too much, but I'll just say, I'll touch on some of your points. Um, It blew me away in looking at picture after picture after picture of these giant Klan rallies. How many times there would be somebody holding a placard that said, protect the purity of women. And what did that mean? I mean, was the purity of women at risk? Well, it was about sex. They didn't want there to be any interracial sex. They made it a crime in many states. Many states, a felony for blacks and whites to have sex. Um, They were concerned about women who were independent. And remember, I talked about they got the vote. They're going to speakeasies. And these newly socially liberated women, there was a primitive form of birth control. So women, some women were sexually liberated. That that was a big thing. Um, They wanted women to stay in the home and have children. They were kind of Taliban-like in some ways because they would go and break up, you know, they would catch people kissing and try to break them up. And you touched on it. One of the incredible twists, ironies of the story is that it was a, a liberated woman, a woman who was a woman of her age, who really was a nobody in some respects. I mean, D.C. Stevens said, who the hell are you to think you could ever bring me down? She was a school teacher. She lived at home with her parents when she was 28 years old. She didn't feel like she needed to marry a man at this time to complete her life. She um, drove across the country, which was a very big deal, before the Lincoln Highway was there. you know. And she thought, I can handle this guy. you know. She needed to go see him to save her job because he, as the Grand Dragon, ran the state of Indiana. And her job was on the chopping block. So the fates collide. The fates collide, and ultimately the fates of America. And what happens, this is as far as I'll go in giving away the story. He was behind all this stuff about the virtue of women. He was a rapist. He was a man who assaulted savagely many women and bit them with his teeth. He also was cannibalistic. A horrible human being. Uh, Was a raging alcoholic while promoting prohibition of course and insisting that you know speakeasy be broken up he was a bootlegger and alcoholic so he kidnaps match and puts her on a train and he brutally violently rapes her and he chews her with his teeth so he leaves her in a state where she's open wounds and she takes a poison remedy thinking I can't live after what happened to me. She's in terrible pain. She thinks it'll be a shame to her mother because then, as often now, women who are victims of rape are blamed as much, if not more, than the men. And that's what she was afraid of. Also, he was the most powerful man. So she said, who was ever going to believe me? She lingers for 28 days on her bed. And during that time, after he'd raped her, chewed on her, assaulted her, and ultimately committed acts that led to her death, she leaves behind this dying declaration, the words that would be submitted in a court of law. And the only thing that finally brings D.C. Stevens the Grand Dragon of Indiana, the most powerful con man in America in the 1920s to justice are her words.
0: I'm wondering, why was it Madge's story that ultimately caused the upset such a like a schism in the fabric of the KKK when violence and sexual assault was actually very widespread among its leadership not just D.C. Stevenson so what was it about this particular instance of sexual assault and violence that that caused the upset
1: well that's a great question i think what happened was and this was done largely because of women the first group To push back against Stevenson's mighty power after Madge had died and Stevenson had been arrested for her murder and rape, were women out of Butler College. And they, 500 of them, 500 of them, which is a pretty big demonstration, turned out to say, Do not let this man get away with this. And they had a kind of a brilliant strategy, which was instead of to abstract, you know, oh, women versus men, you got to do this, they said, this is your daughter, Indiana. This is your wife, Indiana. They personalized it. They said, and that's that's ultimately what was presented to the jury, which may have been thick with Klansmen as well. Um, think of Madge Oberholzer as your daughter or your wife. And I think that's what won the day. You're absolutely correct that men could get away routinely with a lot of sexual assault, especially powerful men. Uh, And I always blame the woman. But in this case, women turned the tables on him and said, just imagine this person is a member of your family. Again, instead of making it an abstract argument, I think that's what made him so successful.
0: Our listeners at this point will realize that this book is not for the faint of heart. We are talking about uh, intense hatred, we are talking about rape and sexual assault, we are talking about vicious violence and death. the violence recollected in this book, Tim, was for me pretty difficult to read. And I'm wondering how you were able to stomach and process that violence, this history, during your research and writing process. It's
1: really, really hard. I would much rather write about my friend Thomas Francis Marr, the guy whose statue is in front of your Capitol. and the book, I did The Immortal Irishman because he was such a lively, wonderful character who changed history on three continents. But I kind of felt the story had to be told because it was so resonant to today that there's so many parallels. I don't need to go into them because they're rather obvious when you read the book about how hatred of others rises and falls, about fear of others rises and falls. And, you know, we are at times in our history a very violent country. I'm sorry. I mean, I didn't invent that. Um, But to not recognize it is to practice historical amnesia. And I don't think you get anywhere if you practice historical amnesia. I mean, do you want a smiley button version of our history? You know, should we all just you know put a giant smile on it and say everything was great? Uh, we shouldn't be afraid of this. I think I think we're really stronger as a, as a nation if we confront this history. So yeah, I God, it was a troubling, hard three years for me. Almost all of it during the pandemic to occupy. 1920s ku klux klan indiana my god uh not to mention i couldn't find you know any mexican restaurants in indiana but while i was there but you know it was very hard it's a dark place um and what you do when you write these histories you time travel so i really try to inhabit the era now there were some really cool things going on still jazz flourished These uniquely American music form, I have a whole chapter where Louis Armstrong records the first African-American jazz record on the same day in the same place where 40,000 Klansmen turn out for the largest rally of hate in the history of this town of Richmond, Indiana. On the same day that this awfulness is going on, this wonderfulness is going on, this music that would outlive the Ku Klux Klan so i tried this is to this is a long way of answering your question but in order to get through the trauma of what i had to live through the, the sexual violence the hatred all of which is not pleasant certainly not something you want to dwell on i had to find you know, our better angels and so i did and there were resistors not just match there were people who really fought tooth and nail against these bastards and um and life still flourished, culture still flourished. Jazz was invented and took over the world by form. This uniquely American art form took hold at a very time that this uniquely American domestic terror group was at its height.
0: I want to go back to DC Stevenson. He is, um, a, for lack of a more appropriate word, a fascinating character in this book and in our country's history. Um, and I think America has a sort of strange fascination. With grifters, and I um I think you can call him a grifter. Um, not only do we buy what grifters are selling, but you know, after they're outed as frauds and hypocrites and criminals even, we're often really, really drawn to their stories. And I'm wondering what drew you to his story? What drew you into DC Stevenson's story? And and you you sort of answered this, but I'm wondering why you decided to pursue it.
1: So that's it's funny you brought that up. That's one of the themes and questions that drove me to finish this story. Is it in our character as Americans or is it just in our character as human beings to fall for con men? I mean, this guy was clearly a charlatan and all the things I mentioned, the awfulness that he did, I won't mention it again. I don't want to traumatize your people. But at his core, he's just a guy that knew how to spread BS and make people believe what they wanted to believe. You know, he—he he, he was well-spoken. He was charismatic. He had 200,000 people turn out in the fields of Kokomo, Indiana for a rally, the largest rally in the history of the Klan. When he landed in his Klan plane on that 4th of July day, they bowed down to him like he was Jesus Christ. You know, his chief aide said we could have told them to lift their arms and start flying, and they would have tried to fly because he was so powerful. And at his core, he was just a completely rotten human being. So you ask this question, as you did. And it drove me for the three years of my research. Why do we fall for these guys? Why do we fall for someone who has no shame, who has no bottom? Even after D.C. Stevenson was facing trial for rape and murder, this is before the trial itself exposed him. But after he was charged, his chosen slate swept the state of Indiana in their election. He got a Klan mayor elected in in, uh, Indianapolis and a Klan city council that quickly moved to outlaw blacks from moving into certain neighborhoods. So even when people saw that he's being charged with rape and murder, they chose to believe. So that goes to your why question. Why do we do that? Why would we do that? Um, You know, a certain former president famously said, I could walk down Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and I wouldn't lose any followers. Well, that's the same sentiment that we see in D.C. Stevens, who famously said, I am the law. I think the reason is the cause is greater than the human being, greater than the man, that we wanna believe in the things that they're spouting, turning America to some imagined better state. And I use the word imagined because it truly was imagined. You know, women didn't have the vote. And most blacks didn't have any rights. Certainly most gays couldn't be open. And you know, life expectancy was well below what it is now. So to think you wanna turn the clock back 100 years, is to go to a period where, you know, there was a lot of bad stuff going on. But it's the desire for that imagined better past that makes us look past the foibles of these men.
0: Timothy, thank you so much for joining me today. I so appreciated this conversation and I really, really enjoyed your book.
1: Well, anytime I can be any part of the Big Sky conversation, it's a good day for me. So thanks for having me.
0: I hope you have a wonderful afternoon. You too. Thanks so much. That was Timothy Egan, author of A Fever in the Heartland, The Ku Klux Klan's Plot to Take Over America and The Woman Who Stopped Them, out now from Viking Press. Look for more information about Tim at mtpr.org where you can also subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You've been listening to The Right Question. The show is produced by Chris Moyles and me. I'm your host, Lauren Korn. Chris also engineered this episode. The artwork for The Right Question was designed by Molly Russell, and our music was written and recorded by John Floridus. Funding for The Right Question is provided by the Greater Montana Foundation, encouraging communication on issues, trends, and values of importance to Montanans. Many thanks to Humanities Montana for supporting this program since 2008, and thank you for listening. The Right Question is a production of Montana Public Radio.